0: Scripture lesson four this morning comes to us from the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. And Suzanne's making eyes at me because I'm reading from Revelation. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. "'robed in white with palm branches in their hands. "'They cried out in a loud voice, saying, "'Salvation belongs to our God "'who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb.' "'And all the angels stood around the throne "'and around the elders and, in, and the four creatures. "'And they fell on their faces before the throne "'and worshiped God, singing, "'Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom "'and thanksgiving and honor and power and might.' be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor will any scorching heats. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this morning is not only the Sunday where we're celebrating All Saints Day, but it's also where we're starting a new sermon series. You can see it there on the screen. What is God like? Uh, now, before I begin credit where credit is due, I did not come up with this title all on my own. It is the title of a children's book that I actually read here maybe a year, a year and a half ago. Um, So, I didn't come up with it, but I think it's a great title, What Is God Like? And it's a a question that I've been wondering about and pondering over the last few years. If you want to know what kind of theological dork I am, uh, this is the sort of thing I lay in bed awake at night, unable to sleep, wondering what God is like. Uh, And we ask this question this way, What Is God Like?, Because we can't know the objective true nature of God, what God is like in all of it's God's purity, but we have metaphors and analogies that help us to access God, approximations that get us close to imagining what God could be like. And uh, as Charles Halton says in the book that we just read for our Bible study, these analogies, these metaphors are not to be viewed as less than but they are good enough for us to have a relationship with God, to access a relationship with God. Um, So we all have metaphors. We all have these ways of imagining and picturing God. And there's a a quote that I love from the uh, late British statistician named George E.P. Box, and he said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. All models are wrong, but some are useful. Now, Of course, he's talking about statistical and scientific models, but I think that that's true for theology as well. All of our models, all of our metaphors, are going to ultimately be wrong. That is, they cannot contain the fullness of who God is. But some are useful, and this is confirmed by the great theologian of the church, Snoopy. (laughs) See Charlie Brown there saying, "I uh, I hear you writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title." Snoopy says, I have the perfect title. It says, has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? <laughs> so we all have these different metaphors, these different ways of conceiving of God, um, and all of them are ultimately going to be wrong. Notice the box quote. He says that all models are wrong. He doesn't say some are more true than others. He says some are more useful than others. That is the measure, that is what makes a scientific or mathematical theory important is that it has usefulness to it, some utility. Uh, So take, for example, the, the theory of general relativity that Einstein discovered over 100 years ago, one of the great scientific discoveries of the modern era. It is not true all of the time, in every instance, but it has great utility, it has great usefulness. So general relativity helps us to create things like GPS, How many of us use GPS in our day-to-day lives, right? It has incredible amounts of utility and usefulness for us. I think that, to me, is the important question when we come to conceiving of and wondering what God is like, not a question of what metaphor or analogy is more true than others, but what is more useful than others, Um, because I've seen in my own experience a lot of blood spilt. Go read the, the history of, of Christianity and you'll see a lot of blood spilt by people who, are, who think they can stake their claim on what the true idea or what, what's true about God, what is objectively true about God. But to me, the more important question is, what is more useful to us? Because if we wanted to, we could come up with all sorts of different metaphors and analogies for what God is like and we could find them within the pages of Scripture. God being described as wrathful, as vengeful, as a stern judge, even as a warrior. And I'm not sure how useful those images are for us. I think sometimes when people actually start reading the Bible for the first time, they're surprised to see God described in such ways. I'm not sure how useful they might be. So, But in my experience, we can start to imagine God in ways that are indeed useful for us. And let me say just a word about what I mean when I talk about imagining God. Uh, this is a phrase that I discovered from the scholar Peter Enns, one of my favorite scholars. Uh, he talks about imagining God. And this is not about flying off into fantasy land. This is not about just making stuff up out of, the, out of nowhere. Imagining God is about how do we make sense of God based off of our experiences. That all of us do this. As Enns will tell you, none of us can escape being human. And so we can imagine our ancestors in faith, those great heroes, those great saints of the church that we remember today, sitting around in their own context and looking out at their world and imagining what God is like, trying to picture what God might actually be like. Uh, You can imagine them looking around at their world and they were trying to conceive of the ultimate authority that they have a lot of kings in their world. And so maybe God is like a king. Or you can imagine in a patriarchal society, the the father being the head of the family, and so they're trying to imagine what, what is God like? Well, maybe God is like a father. They're all imagining God out of their own experiences. But my difficulty and why I've been wondering about this question, what is God like, is that I think a lot of the metaphors that we have for God, the analogies we have for God, are from a very different time. That there is a, a great expanse of time between us and the writers of the Bible. Uh, Ed says in one of his books, I haven't checked the math on it, but I trusted him, he's a scholar. Um, He says, there is as much time between us and the year 5,000 as there is between us and King David. That's how far away, this is the great expanse of time that exists between us. And so I think the problem becomes a lot of the metaphors that we access from the Bible are not readily available to us, are not part of our everyday experience so think about those two metaphors I just gave you, king and father. When's the last time you interacted with the king? I think of that scene from Monty Python. Well, I'm, I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you, right? We, that's not, that doesn't make sense, right? So I think most of us, when we think about kings, we think about what comes to us from fairy tales or from Disney movies. Uh, some of us are rather obsessed with the royal family, and I don't know why didn't we have a war about that, um, Thank you, Donna. I can always count on you for a good laugh. Stephen King, Stephen king yes. Oh uh, so the, the point being, we don't readily interact with kings on a daily basis. So is God like a king? Is God like the king from a fairy tale? Is God like King Charles? I sure hope not. Like, Oh, come on. Listen, I live in the United States, so I can say whatever I want about King Charles. Um <laughs> It's probably true, yeah. (laughs) And what's more is the ways that we conceive of kings is probably very different than somebody in the ancient Middle East might have thought of a king, an autocrat. Is this what God is like? Or take the other example, the example of, of sort of exclusively male language or father language. There's nothing wrong with referring to God as male or as father, but if we only refer to God in those ways... Are we missing some of those feminine depictions of God? We'll talk some more about this next week. Are we missing some of those maybe experiences of God that don't have any gender to them at all? I think we're in need of new metaphors, new ways of seeing and conceiving of God, ways that are useful to us. And I define a useful image of God being anything that helps us to become more loving, just, and whole that an image of God is useful to me when it can help me to understand myself as loved and as lovable, and it can help me to see my neighbors as beloved people of God, who uh, to, see, to love my neighbor as myself, to engage with the world around me. Those, I think, are useful images of God. And so this is what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. We're going to be imagining, thinking about God in these different ways. I'm going to Give you four different ways of imagining God, certainly not the sum total of, how, of the ways we could imagine God, certainly not the sum total of the ways that I imagine God, um, but at least places for us to start, maybe things that we haven't considered uh, before. Uh, so how do we imagine God? What is God like? Uh, this, of course, is not a new question. As Peter Enns will tell you, people of faith have been imagining and reimagining God for thousands of years. Um, and The story that he points to in the Old Testament, the one uh, that sort of sits at the, as the hinge point in the Old Testament is the Babylonian exile. People get carried off away from their own homeland, and uh, they begin to have these deep theological questions, these big existential questions. What is God like? What is God like when we are far away from the land that God gave to us? If we believe God is tied to this land, are we far away from God? these big theological questions, this reimagining of God takes place. And as Enns will also tell you, Christianity as a whole is just one big act of reimagining God. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, shows up, and he doesn't do any of the things that anybody expected the Messiah to do. Uh, The nation of Israel is still under occupation from the Romans. Jesus is crucified. Nobody expected any of that to happen when the Messiah came. And yet, the Christian proclamation is that the Messiah did indeed arrive, it just didn't look like anybody imagined it looking. And so having to reimagine what God is like. What End says is that often our acts of reimagining God come in response to a crisis. And as I think about my own life, I think about how I began to reimagine God in response to a crisis related to one of my saints to my grandfather, George, my mother's dad. Um, my siblings and I, we were uh, close with my maternal grandparents. They lived just a few miles away from us, and so we, we saw them all the time. We, we loved those opportunities to have sleepovers at Grandma and Grandpa's house. The four of us would lay our sleeping bags out in their living room, and uh, those are great memories for us. And, um, and my grandfather, he, they, were those, uh, they were those free babysitters for my grandparents. Uh, <laughs> Some of you grandparents are the free babysitters for your kids and your grandkids, right? Uh, My grandfather was an excellent amateur uh, carpenter. There was a lot of uh, furniture we had in our house that he had built for us. Um, He even took time to build toys for me when I was uh, younger, so I have a couple of photos from the photo album to show you. Um, He had built me a sword and a sheath and a shield and a a plate of armor, and we used to do battle every time he would come over to babysit. I always won. He wasn't very good at it. Um, (laughs) It's weird how I always won. Um, And then we were also really interested in the biplanes from World War I, especially the story of the Red Baron. Um, So he had made these in his workshop. Uh, I was always the RAF fighter that took the Red Baron down. So um, you can see him there. He didn't normally wear a red scarf. He was trying to play the part of the Red Baron. Um, So um, when I was really young, like... Almost out of my memory, my grandpa had a heart attack that he survived from. And as a result of that, uh, my grandmother was very uh, overbearing and watching everything he ate. And so he really loved these... Op- <laughs> I'm too close for you to be doing that. <laughs> um, Alan's pointing at Donna. <laughs> um, so he always looked forward to these opportunities to get away from her watchful eye to eat junk food. Um, So one of my favorite memories was when he, uh, after he had one of his surgeries, one of his bypasses or something from heart disease, and um, he was recovering, and during his recovery he temporarily had an oxygen tank with him, and he was just like incredibly cooped up in the house. And so my dad, brother, and I, we took him to one of the car shows in town, and he was walking around with his oxygen tank, and I think at that car show he ate like two hot dogs and three bags of buttered popcorn. (laughs) Always looking forward to those opportunities to eat that junk food away from my grandma watching him. Um, As I got older, he would come to my uh, basketball and baseball games, and he had this little notebook with graph paper in it. He would keep track of my stats for me, what my batting average was, how many points I'd scored. Um, And as he got older, he wasn't able to do the things that he loved to do anymore. Uh, Those projects in his downstairs uh, shop ended. And I think what he really missed, though, was the ability to work in his yard. My grandfather loved gardening, loved uh, mowing his grass. He had planters of flowers all over the place. Um, Rose bushes, I think, were some of his favorites. Um, I have a row of rose bushes in my front yard that I think remind me of him. Uh, So he wasn't able to do these things. And so it fell to me as the oldest grandson to start to mow his grass, to take care of his yard. And so I'd hop on my bike right over to their house and uh, this was a really big deal for him. He was very controlling about his yard. Um, I remember the first time I cut his grass, he stood two feet in front of me. He had this wood stick in his hand, and he pointed exactly where I needed to go and make sure the lines were just right. That's how controlling he was about the grass. Um, but of course, pretty quickly he learned to trust me. He learned that I could keep the lines clean and make his grass looking keep his grass looking nice. And so he'd sit in his. Recline or his, his lawn chair and drink lemonade and read his favorite Carl Sagan books while I was doing all of this. And he'd still get up every once in a while and check and make sure I was doing everything, uh, everything right. Um, I love my grandfather. Um, one of the special people in my life. And I was only, uh, 17 when he died. I still, uh, remember the phone call, uh, coming to the house, my mom answering, and then her coming in and telling us that grandpa, uh, had died. And, um, This was a crisis for me, Um, not simply because it was somebody that I loved, it was the first person I loved that I was close to who who passed away, but it was also a crisis of faith for me because, see, I I grew up in a, a version of Christianity that was taught that the most important thing you could do with your life was to be saved, to ask Jesus into your heart, to pray what was known as the sinner's prayer. Uh, and you, that was the only way that you could be saved, the only way that you could be right with God. And I remember my grandparents were both lapsed Lutherans. They had gone to the Lutheran church when their kids were little, but when I knew them, that was never really a part of their lives. And so as far as I'd known, they had never prayed such a prayer. And so when my grandpa died, one of the first thoughts that I had was, where's Grandpa? this incredible amount of anxiety, concern, was my grandpa in heaven or was my grandfather in hell? And I don't tell you this story because I'm proud of any of this. I tell you this because this is what I was taught. This is what I was told God was like. And when he died, it created this incredible crisis for me. And I remember I had just bought this little pocket Bible, uh, a red-letter Bible, Stacy. Uh, I just bought this pocket Bible. And uh, I remember flipping through the pages, trying to find some loophole, some sense that maybe God had been gracious to my grandfather. And I remember in the weeks following his funeral, combing through his bookshelf, bookshelves uh, in his basement, going through all of his favorite Carl Sagan books, trying to find some sense of my grandfather's faith. It was an incredible crisis for me. And it was one that began my reimagining of God. Was this really what God was like? Was God this punitive, this thin-skinned? Did God need magic words and a password in order to make you right with God? It began this whole process almost 20 years ago now of me thinking and reimagining what God was like, listening to and reading different things And the God that I discovered along the way, the God that I continue to discover, is a God who is far more loving and gracious and welcoming than I could have ever imagined, than I had been led to believe as a child. That it seemed like every time I looked, I saw more and more people being included. That I started to feel a little bit like John of Patmos from the fan favorite book of Revelation, Suzanne's favorite book. I know that when we think of loving, inclusive images of God, the place we normally don't go first is the book of Revelation. Um, Revelation has this, uh, this stereotype of being like a blockbuster disaster movie, right? Uh, stars flying from heaven, the horsemen of the apocalypse, the whole nine yards. If you want some entertainment, go read the book of Revelation. But here at the beginning of the book, John of Patmos is taken into the heavenly throne room, an image that makes sense within his world. And just before what we read this morning, he sees a vision of his own people, the people of Israel, gathered around the throne, held in God's embrace. And then as we enter into this section we read this morning, John looks again, and when he looks, he sees a great multitude of people from every nation on earth and all the people within those nations. And it's so great that nobody could count That multitude. That John looks once, sees his own people. John looks again and sees even more. Every time John looks, the circle just keeps on getting wider. And that's what it started to feel like to me as I imagined and reimagined God, that every time I looked, the circle just kept on getting wider. It wasn't just the conservative evangelicals I was raised with who prayed the sinner's prayer who were held in God's embrace, but it was last Lutherans, it was Hindus and Jews and Muslims, it was social activists and poets and Sunday school teachers and and uncles and aunts. It was all sorts of people held in the embrace of God that that I, I kept on looking, and I got to the point in my life where I just simply stopped looking for the boundary of that embrace. It became a fool's errand to look for the boundary of that embrace. What is God like? God is not the thin-skinned autocrat of my youth. God is not one who needs magical words and hocus-pocus to love and embrace you and I. And I think that any version of faith that teaches that is not only unhelpful, it is Also incredibly toxic. If you want to know why so many of us post evangelicals are so traumatized, it's because of ideas like that. The Franciscan friar Richard Rohr says that the ones who know God best, the the prayerful ones, the saints, the hermits who have earnestly sought God, have always met not a dictator, but a lover. What is God like? God is like this expanding circle that keeps on going out wider, wider, and wider. And here on this All Saints Day, as we remember those who have traveled with us, those Sunday school teachers and parents and grandparents and friends and colleagues, those who have joined the great heavenly chorus that John sees in Revelation, as we remember them today, we look and we see not only them, we look and we see the great God who embraces and holds them, the great God who embraces and holds each and every one of us, the God whose love and grace and inclusivity and welcome just keeps on going. Thanks be to God. Amen.